You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today we'll be discussing follicular lymphoma, and I just want to take a minute to reflect on that disease and really on several decades of thinking about follicular lymphoma and treating patients. Essentially, the teaching was, at least when I was a fellow, that follicular lymphoma is not a curable disease, that the goal of treatment is palliation, is to allow people to live as long and as well as possible with follicular lymphoma. But over the last decade in particular, there's been many advances in terms of therapeutics for patients with follicular lymphoma. And I think it's raised very, very interesting questions about, is this a in fact, a curable disease, and should we not be doing watch and wait, but rather should we be treating patients more aggressively? So with all that in mind, we're very fortunate today to have with us Dr. Jeff Sharman, who's the Director of Research at the Williamette Valley Cancer Institute and the Medical Director of Hematology Research for the U.S. Oncology Network. He's our guest today, and looking forward to a really interesting conversation, and I'd like to thank Dr. Jeff Sharman for joining us. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here. So I would like to start out with a very, uh, perhaps a very basic question. We think about follicular lymphoma as a histologic type of lymphoma. We think about follicles. We think about, you know, how they present in the lymph nodes. But how are they biologically different from other types of lymphoma? In fact, a question I've never thought of asking before, but why do they form follicles? Maybe that's a question without an answer. Absolutely. So when I meet a patient with a newly diagnosed lymphoma, I typically march through this algorithm, which helps them differentiate how the different types of lymphoma distinguish themselves from one another, in part because, you know, a lot of patients can say, oh, I have lymphoma, but then it's another thing to say, I have B-cell lymphoma, and then exactly what subtype, because there's really innumerable different subtypes of lymphoma. And granted, they tend to cluster into discrete groups. But I think for patients' perspective, it's useful to differentiate those. So once somebody has lymphoma, we characterize Hodgkin's versus non-Hodgkin's. Then we talk about T-cell versus B-cell lymphoma. And then within the B-cell lymphoma category, we talk about the indolent, aggressive, and highly aggressive B-cell malignancies. I generally characterize these to patients as slow, medium, and fast because I think the terminology is a little bit more more obvious than indolent, aggressive, and highly aggressive. Within the indolent category, the most common entity is follicular lymphoma, but there's also marginal zone lymphoma, small lymphocytic lymphoma, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, chronic lymphocytic leukemia is included in there as well. So, you know, in the past, not really too terribly long ago, we approached most of the indolent lymphomas in relatively similar fashion. But I think as our tool chest is expanding and we're getting agents that might have activity that are specific to different diseases within the class, and we're getting a better insight into the biology of what causes these, you know, I think the specific subtype of indolent lymphoma is becoming more and more important. Uh, You asked a question about uh, uh, nodules and germinal centers. So Follicular lymphoma is a cancer of the B cells within the germinal center of the lymph node. 
an exact biology of what gives rise to uh, lymphoma and in particular follicular lymphomas evolving. But even within recent uh, past, we've learned about some of the role of EZH2 mutations retaining cells within the germinal zone of these lymph nodes. I'm sure we'll talk more about EZH2 as a target uh, later in our talk today. I'm going to ask even a more basic question. Some of the teaching, at least for oncologists 20, 30 years ago, was that we really don't cure patients with follicular lymphoma, that a watch and wait approach is reasonable. So let me ask you these as, I'll call them truth or myth. Truth or myth, we can't cure patients with follicular lymphoma. Well, Ken, I would say that that has been the paradigm for the entirety of my career as well, that this is an incurable diagnosis. And you know, now as this question comes up with my patients, I don't know the answer to that question. And the reason I say that is I don't think we have adequate long-term data on CAR-T in this population. However, the data that we do have is getting to be more and more impressive. And if we extrapolate from diseases such as acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is a, you know, kinetically very robust malignancy, or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is also a very fast-moving malignancy, those are diseases where it does appear that we're getting cures using CAR-T therapy. And, you know, I think we're extrapolating to some degree because with follicular lymphoma, you're reluctant to call anything a cure until, you know, you see really long-term data on these diseases. But we are seeing high response rates, and they appear to be quite durable and molecular minimal residual disease and so forth, these are all things that are encouraging to believe that we may very well be changing this paradigm that's existed as long as we've known the disease. So a similar question, uh, again, truth or myth, watch and wait approach is the way to go. Watch and wait remains a paradigm that is true. And I would mm -hmm. continue to emphasize that although we have exciting new developments, I don't think that that has changed at all. In particular, you know, our patients with follicular lymphoma, we've seen from a number of data sets over the years that many patients may not need therapy for years. And all of us have experience following patients who haven't required therapy ever. So there is a population of patients who can do quite well. And I think that you treat when you need to treat. And oftentimes we refer to the GELF criteria as those patients with high tumor burden or indications for therapy. Yeah. Along those lines, say more about the criteria because I think it's just interesting to repeat for everyone listening in. But yeah, how do you decide? Let me ask about your using criteria, but also how do you integrate into that your own clinical background and knowledge? So I don't think the GELF criteria are sort of uniquely hard set criteria where you can't treat until they're met or you have to treat once they are met. There are patients who meet GELF criteria who you may be able to sit on for some length of time and vice versa. However, I do think that they serve as a reasonable template for who it is who's going to need therapy. And generally, we look at uh, somebody with greater than three lymph nodes in excess of three centimeters a solitary lymph node in excess of seven centimeters, somebody who's developed bone marrow dysfunction has cytopenias or circulating follicular lymphoma, someone who's developed fluid accumulations such as ascites or pleural effusions, or anybody with sort of impending organ dysfunction. I think sometimes the bulky retroperitoneal nodes that could potentially obstruct ureters and so forth. These are the criteria that I think, you know, would be agreed upon that, hey, such a patient needs therapy. 
you know, I'd ask you to reflect upon just sort of that first meeting with patients with follicular lymphoma. I've always found it, honestly, to be very, uh, very interesting conversation. Someone comes in and you say, you have cancer, you have lymphoma, and I don't want to do anything about it. What are your reflections on that first meeting and what happens in a first visit like that? Yeah, I completely agree with you. The hi, you have cancer and we're going to just sit tight requires some unpacking for most patients. And oftentimes what I do is I divide patients into high tumor burden or low tumor burden according to their GELF criteria. And I kind of have my own sort of routine that I go through, which is to say, you know, you've undoubtedly heard that early detection saves lives and early intervention leads to the best outcomes. And that's absolutely true for a number of malignancies, but not necessarily true for follicular lymphoma. And I talk about the fact that many patients may not need therapy for years. I can cite examples of patients I've followed for over a decade without requiring therapy. And then I talk about what are the criteria for treatment. And, you know, more often than not, by the time I get through that whole sort of routine, patients are more comfortable with it. Although I do absolutely find that some patients just can't stand the thought of disease left untreated. And, you know, we do have data in the low tumor burn setting of rituximab therapy versus watch and wait. And I think it is a reasonable thing to consider for some patients that treating them with rituximab monotherapy, if they just simply can't accept that watch and wait paradigm, is a place that we can go clinically. Yeah. Uh, and, and thank you. I, I mean, honestly, I've had the same experience. I find it to be one of the most interesting conversations in my practice. It has gotten for the generalist, of which I am one, but it has become more complex. And I'm going to say at times confusing to know what to start with in terms of therapy. So let's say you have a patient who's, we'll call them 60 years old and a good performance status, and they have a follicular lymphoma that needs to be treated. There's a lot of choices now. So Again, what goes into your thinking? I really want to get into that. How do you make those decisions? What do you see as your menu of options? And how do you move forward? Absolutely. So, you know, again, I kind of go back to the uh, low tumor burden versus high tumor burden. And those patients who are low tumor burden, it's generally a discussion of watchful waiting versus rituximab monotherapy. Whereas those patients with a high tumor burden disease, generally at that point, we're talking about what sort of systemic therapy we're going to use. And, you know, there's a couple recent large studies in this space. I think one of the biggest heartbreaks in the field was the lenalidomide rituximab versus chemoimmunotherapy. That was a study powered for superiority, in fact, more or less showed equivalency. So I think a lot of people had hoped that lenalidomide rituximab might become a frontline option. It did not get an FDA-approved label in that indication. However, in my geographic vicinity, you know, in the Northwest, I certainly encounter patients who are very adamant against chemotherapy. And I have on occasion used lenalidomide rituximab in the frontline setting. But for most patients, we're talking about a chemoimmunotherapy approach. And within the field, I think that the most uh, commonly utilized regimen for quite some time has been bendamustine-based therapy. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have CHOP and you have CVP. I primarily reserve the CVP for the older and less fit patients for whom I think that bendamustine could be a challenge. And I generally reserve the CHOP for those patients who might have any suspicion of occult uh, disease transformation or, you know, disease that seems to be behaving in a manner more consistent with an aggressive lymphoma. So 
oftentimes I find myself using bendamustine. The other major study in this area has asked the question about rituximab versus obinutuzumab. And more and more, I've been using the obinutuzumab regimen. I do think that it comes with a higher degree of uh, toxicity and adverse events. So I do reserve the obinutuzumab for younger, more fit patients, whereas the rituximab for older or less fit patients for whom I still think that bendamustine is relevant. I do think it's important to consider uh, acyclovir and Bactrim prophylaxis for those patients to prevent infectious complications, but I find that we're able to get most of those patients through. There's been some concern about bendamustine obinutuzumab because in the trial that did this, there was a higher mortality rate amongst those patients treated with bendamustine obinutuzumab. The way the study was conducted, there wasn't a randomization, so I think it was a little bit difficult to be conclusive about that. But there is some apprehension in the field about uh, too much use of bendamustine obinutuzumab. So again, I tend to reserve that for the younger, robust patient. So let me ask you also, you've gone, let's say, through first-line therapy. In your practice, what would be considered second-line therapy? And to go back to your paradigm, again, it's a patient, let's say, with higher volume disease where treatment is really necessary. Right. So in the second line setting, I use a lot of lenalidomide rituximab. It's approved in the second line setting. It's actually one of the very few regimens that has a specific second line indication. It is also quite effective and and the data has been published now for about a year and a half, two years. I find it to be a well-tolerated regimen with a high level of efficacy. I use that a lot. I think that the population where I might do something different are those patients with early progression of disease, those patients who progress after chemoimmunotherapy within the first 24 months. Those patients, I might tend more towards an anthracycline-based regimen or consideration for transplant. So those patients with early relapse, which are a smaller minority of patients, but they do exist. And I don't know that I would say it's lenalidomide rituximab for all. There have been a tremendous number of advances in treatment, and you've started to mention some of them. Let me list some of them, you know, EZH2-related therapy, PI3 kinase-related therapy. Can you tell us more about those? Well, you know, there's a number of new developments coming in the field and others that are sort of recently arrived. The most recent drug approved in follicular lymphoma is tazemetostat, also known as tazvoric. And this is, in fact, an EZH2 inhibitor. EZH2 is a target that's really kind of a transcription factor that involves release of these cells from the germinal center. And EZH2 inhibitors were developed because mutations in EZH2 are one of the more common abnormalities found on sort of next generation sequencing panels for patients with follicular lymphoma. I say one of the more common, but in fact, really only about uh, 10% of patients have these mutation. And what was seen was that those patients with the mutation have a very high response rate to EZH2 inhibitors, although whether you have the mutation or not, the overall duration of benefit is relatively similar whether you have the mutation or not. And patients derive about a year's worth of benefit on average from this drug. It's pretty well-tolerated therapy. It's oral. So, you know, a, a new agent that's recently been approved in this space The other sort of small molecule target in this place that already has a number of options is the PI3 kinase pathway. And the PI3 kinase inhibitors have been around for some length of time, although they're not always the easiest agents to use. Both 
idelalisib and duvelisib are highly molecularly similar agents. If you look at the chemical structure of these, they differentiate in very minor ways. And those drugs have been sort of notable and or notorious for their rates of transaminase elevation and clinically significant rates of diarrhea. So they haven't been the easiest drugs to use. And although they are used to some degree, I think it's been a challenge for the field. And in that context, Copanilisib was approved a while back. That's an IV formulation of a PI3 delta inhibitor, which also gets some PI3 alpha. And the reason that's significant is patients can have some transient hyperglycemia and hypertension during their once weekly infusions and doesn't seem to have the same rates of diarrhea, but it's a IV once weekly therapy, which has that set of challenges. And so in that context, we had some data at this meeting on umbralisib, which is a third in class PI3 delta inhibitor. But I do think that from the data I've seen, as well as my experience using the drug, it's differentiated in that it really does have lower rates of diarrhea. And if you look at the frequency with which patients discontinue the therapy for adverse events, it's considerably lower than what we've seen with the other oral agents. So the drug has a what we call a PDUFA date, which stands for Prescription Drug User Fee Act, which uh, signals that the FDA is anticipating likely approving the drug in both marginal zone lymphoma and then perhaps a little bit later follicular lymphoma. So both of these are incremental gains for our patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma. But I would highlight what I think could be some very exciting data with drug classes called bispecific antibodies, as well as chimeric antigen receptor T-cell-based therapy. These two immunologic approaches are, are really quite exciting and coming on quite quickly. Thank you. I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, bispecific antibodies. What are they? So rituximab has been around for 20 years or so, and that was one of the first therapeutic antibodies we used to treat malignancies. And I think most clinicians are familiar with the paradigm of an antibody being sort of like the letter Y, and at the peak of the two arms of the Y are sort of the grabbers. (laughs) You know, those grabbers Mm -hmm. are what's specific to the antibody. And at least in nature, the expectation is that the two grabbers are identical to one another. So rituximab has two grabbers for CD20. Bispecific antibodies are different where they've engineered the two grabbers to be different. And in this case, what we're seeing are these um, four different agents uh, being moved forward that are sort of at the front of the pack, I should say, where one grabber is specific for CD20 and the other grabber is specific for CD3. And what this does is it brings the T-cell into proximity with a B-cell and then relies on the T-cell to do the killing of the malignant B-cell. And honestly, to me, it seemed a little bit far-fetched when these were first coming into clinical practice. And the first agent that sort of used this strategy was called blinatumumab to treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And it was a little bit of a clunky drug because it wasn't a full-length antibody. It had a very short half-life, so patients had to be on these sort of long-term infusions. But as a proof of concept, it worked. And what's changed is now it's been demonstrated that you can make these full-length antibodies. And, you know, I would say within the hematologic malignancies, bispecific antibodies are really one of the most exciting drug classes 
both in lymphoma and multiple myeloma, where some of these are showing very high degrees of clinical efficacy with a toxicity profile that's really most notable during the first couple weeks of infusion where sort of a cytokine release syndrome is possible. But one of the agents, a drug by the name of mosonatuzumab, is likely to gain approval in the indolent lymphoma space. The exact specifics of that label will yet to be determined. But, you know, these are agents coming fairly soon to practicing oncologists. You know, a question along those lines with bispecific antibodies. Does that mimic what's happening with CAR-T? Does it replace CAR-T, but it's pulling in the T-cells? And the second part is, are there other payloads uh, that are being tested beside the second antibody? Yeah, so good questions. And the answer to the first question, which is, does it replace CAR-T? I think that these are complementary therapies. Undoubtedly, they're going to be competing to some degree. I think one of the big challenges for the field with CAR-T cell therapy is access. You know, if you look at a disease like large cell lymphoma, it's estimated that perhaps as few as one out of five patients who is eligible for CAR-T is getting treated with CAR-T. And that has to do with the availability of treating centers capable of doing this. The appeal of a bispecific antibody is that it's off the shelf and ready to be used. I think that they are not interchangeable and they are different therapies. And I think that how these roll out in terms of the commercial utilization of them is yet to be defined. But I think that access is important. And I think specifically as we think about access for patients with large cell lymphoma is we don't want to be sending patients to CAR-T after they've exhausted the full range of off-the-shelf options, because at that point they may be so beaten up or have such advanced disease where they may have been better for referral early on. Your second question was one about payloads, and I I guess I want to differentiate what I'll call an antibody drug conjugate versus a bispecific antibody. So an antibody drug conjugate is a molecule that actually has two of the same grabbers, but then is sort of internalized by the cell and contains a like a chemotherapy warhead, you know, think of brentuximab in Hodgkin's disease, mm-hmm. uh, where that's monomethyl orostatin E. We are seeing other antibody drug conjugates come forward in the lymphoma space. Right now, a lot of that's focused on the large cell lymphoma space where longcastuximab is going to be approved relatively soon. And that's has a payload that we call a PBD, uh, perolobenzodiazepine. In follicular lymphoma, I don't think there's a whole lot going right now with antibody drug conjugates. I think more of the emphasis is on the bispecifics. Excellent. Jeff, let me ask you, you seem excited about CAR-T. What are some of the latest advances that encourage you? You know, there's three CAR-T products that are available, two for large cell lymphoma, one for mantle cell lymphoma. Of course, there's others for acute lymphoblastic leukemia as well. I think that we're going to be seeing approval for another product, which is lysocaptogene uh, Soloya cell, and that is yet another CAR-T product. But I think it's a little bit differentiated in terms of the frequency of the cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicity. I think it's sufficiently differentiated that it might warrant outpatient administration, which would be new and unique amongst CAR-T cell products. And... To that end, um, our organization has worked to develop an outpatient treatment protocol 
for patients with large cell lymphoma, you know, I think that this will be gaining regulatory approval amongst those patients with follicular lymphoma before too terribly long. Very exciting. Yeah. Jeff, I want to change the topic a little bit. If you could say a little bit about the treatment team, you know, the other members of the team, what is the role that they play in terms of treating patients with uh, follicular lymphoma? Well, Ken, I oftentimes refer to my pharmacists at my organization as God's gift to patients with expensive medications. You know, the outpatient oral medications really do represent a a financial challenge. And I have found that uh, my pharmacists are incredibly adept at navigating the copayment support programs and so forth to ensure that our patients have access to the therapies when we believe our patients need them. In different organizations, that may be the social worker, it may be the nurse, or so forth. And to each of those individuals who are involved, God bless you. (laughs) Those are really important people. You know, I think that from the nursing perspective, the education regarding side effects and when to call can be so important because, you know, when we talk about the PI3 kinase inhibitors and the monitoring required and how to manage diarrhea, it really calls for prompt intervention and early interruption of therapy. Our infusion nurses who are giving some of the novel agents, be it obinutuzumab or even rituximab or the chemotherapy drugs, the obinutuzumab, I think when it first came out, was notable for the increased infusional side effects. I think in large part, those have been solved and settled, but you know it requires a close level of attention with those infusions. And as we move into bispecifics and CAR-T, you know, we're going to be looking at that team, including potentially even our ICU colleagues for these patients who have cytokine release and have hypotension, need pressors in the short term. So, you know, it's an expanding team and keeping everybody on the same page requires a lot of coordination by the treating oncologist. Absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful session. I want to thank Dr. Jeff Sharman, who's Director of Research at the William Med Valley Cancer Institute and Medical Director of Hematology Research for U.S. Oncology. Jeff, thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you all for listening to this very informative, very, very interesting episode. For a listing of all of our Healthcare Professional Continuing Education Activities podcasts and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive information about future podcast episodes by subscribing to treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. We look forward to you joining us on future podcast episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.